This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, hello. It is time for a new episode of one of your favorite podcasts, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. We are now on episode 18. It is Marcus in the Darkest alongside my partner in crime. Ray Coob, and we're going to be talking about the early days in the history of heavy metal, the Stone Age, I guess you could call it. Seriously. So we're going to call it that and uh, try to have some fun with it today here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, which is sponsored by our good friends at Crooked Eye Brewery in Hapro. Uh, they're great folks, and we thank them for their support here on the Imbalanced History Podcast. And we're going to see them and see you. Tell them about it, Marcus. We are going to be broadcasting or uh, recording, podcasting. podcasting, not broadcasting. We are going to be podcasting live July 23rd from Crooked Eye. We're going to do two podcasts, and we will get more information about that as we roll into it. But and we- you can also find out right now on our Facebook page, uh, Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll on Facebook, uh, and that gives you the subjects of the podcasts and any participation windows for you and a little bit more info on what's going on there that night and a map and directions and all that good stuff if that's what you need. Yeah. So we'll see you on the 23rd for our first ever live event, brother. I'm excited. I'm really stoked. Great beer, great company. It is going to be a great evening. Hopefully a great podcast, too. Oh, absolutely. Well, my brother in musical direction and adventure, um, I'm telling you something. I started out, because we started talking about the sound of heavy metal and when it started to appear, and we had some preconceived notions and about certain touchstones or touch points, right? Mm-hmm. And did you also find that the harder you look to find what the true source was for the music and also the term heavy metal, the harder I looked, the less I was sure that I was finding what I was looking for. It did get very confusing. In fact, it became more and more confusing as we dug deeper and deeper. I know you found that out during your uh, research and... It at times was like, no way, man. All of these myths, all of these, you know, this lore was shattered by what we had found out. All right. Now, first, here's the first surprise, though. Uh, The first thing that I read that surprised me was that someone tied it to Louie Louie by the Kingsmen. Ready? Yeah. What? I don't think so. No. No, no, no. But it was heavy, and it is one of the yeah. most covered songs of all time. But 
that's when guitar sound went from the acoustic age to the electric age, and you started seeing. And it was still pretty clean. It was still pretty clean, and that's what we were talking about when we were first talking about this episode. Um, We talked about Dave Davies of the Kinks, uh, and uh, basically he went into the studio and wasn't satisfied with the sound that was in his head versus the sound that he was getting out of his amp. So, legend has it that he took a razor blade and cut the cone of the amplifier speaker. And then the sound you got was that guitar sound on You Really Got Me and songs like that. It was a definitely what kind of moment for rock and roll guitar players because everything else had been very smooth, rhythm, clean, and all that. And then Dave Davies tore it up. Yep. And again... You know, you have all these other bands that we have talked about before going into the recording as well. Cream, the Yardbirds all yeah. played a big influence. The Beatles, you can't deny, played an influence. No, in you got you got a point. Metal. Absolutely, there's sounds in there. They may not be heavy metal, so to speak, but the metal, the heavy sounds are in there. Uh, most notably for the Beatles, say on "I Want You," "She's So Heavy," mm-hmm. and "Helter Skelter," two songs that really rocked beyond what they'd already been doing. Revolution, uh, number nine. You could say that, too. Revolution, uh, definitely he a heavy edge. in there. And, you know, the parts in the songs in the doors, you mentioned Cream. They were they were power. Chas Chandler, who managed Hendrix, said it was Jimmy that got the first reference. And in, uh, in a review of Axis Bold is Love by Jim Miller says, uh, sounds like a junk heap, very heavy and metallic loud. So Chas kind of misses the mark, and as many recollectors have, misremembered the events of the language that was used because everybody was clamoring to say, oh, I was the guy that said heavy metal. Yeah. So we went looking, right? We did go looking, but, you know, a lot of people had coined Lester Bangs with that term as well, and I don't think Lester Bangs ever said, yeah, it was me. I think he was kind of like, well... Lester didn't give a shit if it was yeah. him. He just wrote. He wrote what he thought. He didn't like know if you liked it or cared, and he just wrote the next thing he yep. wrote. He, and he didn't like Black Sabbath at the beginning, no, no, we'll make, get to that. I'm yeah, sure we'll we're going to get to that. That's coming up. Oh, absolutely. Now, just, we're just talking about the term. One of the people who said that they coined it was um, Sandy Perlman, who was a big part of the Blue Oyster Cult camp, uh, was once a writer for Crawdaddy, and I did not know that. And he claimed he coined the term for decades during review of The Birds, believe it or not. Uh, but when uh, Deanna Weinstein went and looked, uh, she didn't find it in that review. And that's who uh, I read this article by Deanna Weinstein that just blew me away. She went in detail looking at all the stuff. She looked at Sandy Perlman. She reviewed and dismissed the Steppenwolf, Heavy Metal, Thunder, and Born to be Wild as the touch point for that. Sonically, bands from Detroit, Stooges and MC5, they contributed. So there's this industrial commonality between Detroit and and Birmingham, where a lot of the things were happening, and we talked about that um, because that's where Sabbath came from. You had the Velvet Underground doing their weird stuff. Lou Reed probably was playing a part as an influence at that time period. Anything that pushed the sonic envelope. Anything that was like, what, too loud, you know, uh, and pushing the sonic envelope. There's another theory. I always thought that this was part of it, too, because um, Burroughs, William Burroughs, is is referenced. And a lot of people always say that the um, reference to heavy metal was in uh, his famous Naked Lunch novel, Um, but it was years before that in Nova Express that there was a character named the Heavy Metal Kid, and uh, that trilogy of books is uh, more about drug consumption uh, than music, and it's definitely not Naked Lunch, so that kind of struck that one out. Yeah, that's, you know, that's pretty crazy that uh, 
everybody had cited William Burroughs incorrectly as well. I guess uh, the people citing him might have been on the same drugs that he was writing well, about. Well, you know, there is reference to bands as heavy metal kids, and maybe it was more about their drug use, like you're saying, uh, than their sound at that point. We talk about Lester Bangs on here a lot. Well, um, but he's when a he legend. Was at, yeah, sure, he's one of my favorite writers. Great writer. When he was a cream at it, Rolling Stone, he called it downer music in his Sabbath review. We talked about that uh, in our previous episodes. Yeah. But he seems to be both for and against Black Sabbath. Also, uh, he referred to a couple bands in his reviews as grits and metal bands. Pretty interesting terminology, you know, the, the comparison of grits and metal. Um, but the first actual mention is in his review of Sir Lord Baltimore, and he says, seems to have down pat most of all the best heavy trick in the book. Is that really it, though? No. No. So we keep looking, right? I know. <laughs> now, in Rolling Stone in 1968, Barry Gifford writes about uh, Mike Bloomfield, and um, he says, this is the new soul music, the synthesis of white blues and heavy metal rock. And he described the sound not named a genre. He wasn't naming it. He was saying what a lot of people have been saying, and I guess that's the point of all this, they were calling it heavy rock. There were a lot of heavy rock bands, you know? Um, And the uh, the British Midlands seemed to breathe them in in large numbers. Um, When you look at the list of the bands that are under that banner of heavy rock in that period in the 60s. Uh, we mentioned a few of them, but The Who gets put in there, The Fugs and Blue Cheer, who I know you like a lot, yeah. uh, Humble Pie, Blood Rock. Yeah, Budgie. Uh, Bud, well, no, no, they're not out yet. Uh-huh. They're, the, now, what's going on while all these heavy sounds are happening, it's almost like um, fallout from the Velvets. They start hearing the music unfolding in the 60s from Iron Butterfly and Sabbath, Zeppelin, Deep Purple. You know, they made records before Ian Gillen that were pretty good, and it had that heavy sound. As I always say, John Lord was the first heavy metal uh, organ player. Yeah, and it's funny that so many American metal people discount the importance of the keyboards and the metal sound. It can be incredibly important, and I think in the uh, synthesizer era, it proved to be even more important. Oh, yeah. But what else was going on, my dear Marcus, is there are bands that were forming out there. They wouldn't make albums for a while. Judas Priest, Alice Cooper, the Scorpions, who'd been out there working on it all through the 60s. One of your favorites in mine, Thin Lizzy, and we mentioned Humble, Humble Pie before. But these bands were all getting ready to explode. Blue Oyster Cult. We talked about Budgie. Budgie is, is a band that really is in that first wave of British heavy metal. And they're working it from 67 to 71 when they put out the record. Elf, I thought maybe they were in the middle of it. Ronnie James Dio and Doug Thaler, Thaler who uh, worked with Doc McGee for years, yeah. um, he was a guitar player in that band. Uh, Crazy. And they had singles as elves before that, but Elf, and they were forming and trying to get their thing going. Sammy Hagar was out there working on it. Um, status Quo. Uh, the Stooges, and then uh, T-Rex, too. T-Rex oh, yeah. was working. And then, and all these bands had that kind of heavy rock swagger, and I think they were all scrambling, just like they were scrambling after um, uh, the Seattle explosion to try to figure out what it is. What is it, man? I don't know. Who's the next big one? What Who's is it? Gonna what is it going to be? Who's going to be it? But these bands all had distinct sounds, which you can't say happened as we continue to go through the different ages and we'll talk about that each one of these bands had a unique sound they didn't sound like each other i know you had a a point about all of this that you wanted to make and uh we'll get to that right after a word from our sponsors 
You know, Marcus, when Marisa got back from her power walk the other day, she started doing a testimonial for Boldfoot Socks, so I told her, hold on, and I sat her down and had her record it. Hey, Marisa, tell us all about your Boldfoot Socks. You know how much I love to go out on that 5.30 a.m. power walk, and I'm usually coming home sweating and dripping wet from head to toe. But since I bought my Boldfoot Socks, that isn't true anymore, at least not for my toes. After any workout or one of my long walks, I take off my shoes, I take off my socks, and I can't believe how dry my feet are. Even my socks aren't really that wet. These are the bold foot socks that I'm telling you about. Uh, They're so comfortable that I barely feel them on my feet when I'm walking or exercising. Every time you put on these socks, there's two words in capital letters that have so much meaning. You see the words, be bold. What that means to me is that if I'm going to go out for that walk, that jog, to the gym, wherever I'm going, it gives me a message that I can give it my best shot, that I can be empowered. I know it sounds crazy. It's just a pair of socks, but that's what it does for me. And they also wick the sweat away. That's Boldfoot Socks at Boldfoot.com. Check them out and be bold. Hey, Ray, it's been a really fun summer, and included in that summer fun is all the happenings at Crooked Eye Brewery over in the heart of Hatboro. So much going on, including the opening of the Crooked Eye Kitchen and the arrival of Salty Vets Barbecue. Matt and his team started small, but demand immediately outgrew what they'd done, so they've been making more to keep people fed over there. I got to tell you, man, so much has changed in the way things are going, too, like Rich and John are doing a duet now, and they're appearing regularly in addition to all the the regulars like the Crooked Eye Band. And with the fall coming on, you're going to see some really nice fall varieties of beers in the And cider, room. too, yeah. probably. Don't forget, it's all there. Craft cocktails, too, at Crooked Eye at the main location right there off York Road in Hapro. Pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014 and now pouring craft cocktails and serving up that salty vet fall off the bone barbecue. Keep up with what's going on at the Crooked Eye Brewery by following them on Facebook. So, you had a pretty good point I wanted to discuss when we were talking about the origins of heavy metal. We call it the Stone Age because it's really when things were first getting coming together, the tools were being formed, and the ideas of how to make a band that was different and heavy were being formed. Yep, you had the beginning, really, of a lot of the drop detuning that Sabbath was using. Sure. And a few of the other bands, and I think uh, the riffs that Tony Iommi was creating at that time were just over the top incredible, and they scared the shit out of a lot of people. I think the fact that they, the, they were dark and heavy sounds was frightening to people because it was something they weren't used to, and really, even through all the psychedelic stuff of the 60s, they hadn't heard. Really, they hadn't heard anything like that. That's true. It totally... And again... Another aspect of rock and roll that scared the parents, that rebel music. But the funny thing is, is the subject matter and the lyrics often were diametrically opposed to the feeling that people got about the band from the sound, right? Totally diametrically opposite. And they were very much into peace and very much into uh, harmony and anti-war. Ecology. Ecology, the earth. I mean, they actually had legitimate questions and they questioned uh, religion and they questioned other aspects that scared people at that time period. 
which was good. Well, we were at a really different place in our country's history then because you were in the middle of the Vietnam War and people were opposed to that and they didn't have a voice. And I guess a lot of even some of the uh, youth culture wasn't sure what to make of a band like Sabbath because they, they couldn't get their ears around it. It was easy to be singing, you know, songs that felt comfortable. Yeah. It was one of the things I think metal can be credited with is allowing the uncomfortable to become acceptable. It, it was almost like sticking up for the other kid in school who was a little odd like maybe you were. Yeah. What do you say? I mean, you know, these bands really wanted to push the limits and it's interesting how bands all over the world like the Scorpions in Germany were doing this and they all had views similar to a lot of the rebellious youth of America at that time period. The Brits were anti-war. Everybody was anti the Vietnam War all over the world. It wasn't just the American youth who had to go and fight that war. It was people all over the world because the same things were happening in their countries that were happening in our countries. you got to realize that the sound of the revolution musically hadn't been this heavy. And when the words, the lyrics would come out and they would begin to be self-empowering, it really did give a place to go for a lot of people who didn't feel like they were... They fit in, even with the hipsters or the hippies or the freaks. Yep. And they started having a place to go. And it was a lot more honest. Um, it was a lot more real. It wasn't the kumbaya shit of the folk implosion no. or anything like that. It was straight up, we're pissed off. And this is why we're pissed off. And this is how we're pissed off. And you're going to hear us. And you're going to hear our words. And the longer that metal continued to evolve and develop, that became more and more a theme of it. And uh, I suppose when we talk more in the future about um, the Bronze Age, yeah. and then, of course, the Iron Age, yes. and the number of the beast. Oh, yeah. But here at the beginning of it, you had a lot going on, and there were a lot of rules that were not enforced, should we say? Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of rules that were ignored. And uh, in some way, what's Bill Maher do at the end of his show? New rules! They created new rules, and Zeppelin was a big part of that. We talked about that in episode 13, yeah. how they rewrote everything that the Beatles had changed and rewrote it and took it to another level. And then the arrival of all these bands that we've been talking about, uh, the people who were forming in the late 60s and, and early 70s and putting out records from 70. I mean, Alice Cooper's first record, Pretties for You, comes out in 70. The world didn't know what to do with it. They really didn't. No, they were like, what the fuck? Now, Easy Action came out like the next year, and it didn't really connect. Uh, again, they didn't know what the hell to do with it. We got around to putting out Love It to Death, and guys like me spent years looking for the first two until I found them. You know, on vinyl, I still have them. But you have all these great bands that were just coming together. And think about it. They're coming together off the backside of that initial proto-punk explosion of the mid-60s. These guys are coming. Then they get courage. They become emboldened. They get fuel for the fire yeah. uh, with the music of Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple. And, um, you know, when you, when you get to the point where... Uh, uh, Ian Gillen joins up for the Mach 2 lineup, right? Both he and Roger, Roger Glover come in on the third record, Deep Purple and Rock, and then they do Fireball, then they do Machine Head. That's driving a lot of kids wanting to play these crazy riffs. And who's the riffmeister in there? Richie Blackmore. Let's not forget him. Big, big riff guy. And, I mean, but then, 
you have to look at some of the other bands from that time period who were recording because originally Sabbath was listed as heavy prog rock, and you had bands like King Crimson who were making heavy sounds, but they were right. considered prog rock as well. Or Hawkwind. Hawkwind. But wasn't Hawk, was Hawkwind more prog rock, or were they more... Yeah. More space rock. See, I find them to be. That's what I, the stuff that I've heard. I find yeah. it to be more space rock, so, like in the soft yeah. machine category. Yeah. By the way, soft machine has more of a tie to William Burroughs novels. They actually got their name from one of them. But the uh, yeah, that, that's where Hawkwind was. Um, Ian, he was a he was a roadie, and there was a change in the band, and he knew how to play a little, and they uh, made him the bass player. He didn't really know how to play the bass very well, and he learned. Learned trial well. by fire. <laughs> so I figured that was it, the time too. Yeah. Think about it. Yeah, and of, of course, in the Bronze Age, fueled by Jack Daniels, we'll be talking about when Lemmy steps front and center with his voice, and Motorhead helps to lead the charge through the late seventies for what would become the eighties. Absolutely. But we get ahead of ourselves as we always do here on the Imbalance <laughs> History of Rock and Roll podcast. Hey, Marcus, we've uh, had a couple really interesting comments. Uh, I guess you call them podcast updates. We just had two amazing episodes with Kenny Aronson where he told so many great stories. Have you gotten pat over that yet? I mean, our listeners just went ape shit and really ate up those two episodes. Oh, those episodes were so much fun. Those stories were amazing. And he's got so many more stories to share. Well, we thank Kenny once again. But on our Facebook page, I noticed uh, days after the first episode posted, a post from Rick Derringer. With whom he played. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Years. Hello, future podcast guests. Uh, it says, Kenny Aronson was and still is a very cool dude. Thank you, Kenny. Uh, for your generous appreciation of our time playing together. And, you know, while we were listening to Kenny tell that story about his time with Derringer, he really did appreciate it. He really enjoyed that a lot. You could tell. It really meant a lot to him all these years later. We're talking about decades later, and he's speaking in the warmest, fondest terms. Yeah, that's 40 years. That's 40 years since he's played with them. Yeah. So that's, and the fact that he has those fond memories still, and the fact that he's, you know, still able to share those memories is pretty badass. Hey, I almost forgot a couple bands. We were talking about the, um, about the bands that were ramping up Mm -hmm. before the launch. Two bands that were a big part of that. Um, T-Rex, they had formed as Tyrannosaurus Rex for a while before they got signed and all that stuff. And uh, UFO. And Mark Bolin, and, and, and who will come up in our next episode, believe it or not again and ufo you said it that's yep. right man those guys again they uh they really exploded in what was considered the first wave of british heavy metal in the 70s and uh, we'll talk about all that when we get into the next part on our heavy metal history lesson as twisted and screwed up as it can be and uh i'll tell you what man this has been a whole lot of fun just looking into the beginning of it and the origins of it now we were talking about dean uh, weinstein Yes, it's and you great have, paper. Yeah, she great just does paper. great work, and it's it's really good good reading if you want to find out more about stuff. She's looked into it way deeper than we will. But she posed one question, which I think is a valid one, and you wanted to talk about it here before yeah. we signed off. Yeah, before uh, I asked and mentioned the question, you can find it in Just So Stories, How Heavy Metal Got Its Name, A Cautionary Tale by Dina Weinstein. And it's a great read about the early days of heavy metal and it if you read this paper you'll understand why everything became so confusing when we started doing our research because there's a lot of information and she a lot entangles of, a lot of it yeah she I mean, really there's does so much misinformation out there yeah and it's not intentional or bad or it's 
I just bad think, memories I just from think, a lot of drug use. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Everybody was too fucked up to remember the truth. Yeah. But the question that she posed, and this is a brilliant question, would heavy metal be where it is today if it had a different name that wasn't heavy metal? Mm. I mean, well, would the what culture would be, be called? the culture? Exactly. Would the culture be the culture had this hmm. not happened? It's a good question. It's almost like uh, writing one of those alternate universe novels, you know, where one decision's made that makes it that takes it down another road. Like that new movie uh, about the Beatles yesterday where nobody but this one guy knows that the Beatles ever existed, you know, because one road could be taken and everything changes, right? Mm-hmm. Like we talked about uh, Mick and Keith meeting on the platform uh, in Dartford, Kent. Um, I don't know. The music was moving in the right direction. Uh, and there were bands that were not easily categorized like, you know, the Sabbath guys and others that were starting to come out right around that time, 69, 70, 71. And they didn't know what to do. Like, like we talked about earlier about, uh, how to categorize it. Cause everybody wanted to put everything in boxes. It always pissed me off. What would they have called it? I don't know. I don't think it would have been, had the same impact or it would have been the same had it had a different name. I don't think the community would have been maybe as tight. Or lasted as long, maybe. I think the music would have definitely been here. How it would have been here, who knows. But the fact that it became heavy metal, it became so um, rebellious, it became so anti-establishment. It had an air to it of the pirates on this old seas, right? Totally. Raise, hoist the banner, raise the flag, and then you have a, when when you really gets going, and you got somebody like Lemmy who even sounds like an old pirate, like a Viking pirate. Yeah, man, you got Kick all the, ass. <laughs> But when I think that you you may be onto something here because the truth is, it became a, a rallying point, like a, a banner, like raising the banner of metal, and and any band that attempted to raise that banner, uh, well, a lot of them uh, took un heralded scorn for their inability to actually achieve what they said they were. Uh, They tried to do it as a metal band. Maybe they even put the right clothes on and had a couple loud guitars. But boy, there's a million posers in in the universe of rock that'll tell you how harsh it was when it didn't go over well. Oh, absolutely. And Alice in Chains had to prove themselves to the Slayer fans. Oh, so did I. Yep. And (laughs) So did I. Yep. I'll tell you about that story sometime. Well, definitely. When we get into the Slayer era, we'll definitely have to hear about oh, that wait a minute. story. Wait a minute. Maybe, uh, maybe we could take uh, the John Lennon quote uh, about Chuck Berry and twist it a little and say that if if you were going to call, uh, if you were going to give rename rock and roll, you could call it Chuck Berry. Well, you could rename heavy metal. You could call it Motorhead. True. And that might be an accurate thing. I mean, but then again, the purists who say Sabbath are the godfathers and the founders of heavy metal might take a little umbrage to that. Tony might say that it is far too dark of a name for a genre of music to ever catch on. We're just lucky that we made it as a band for a few years. <laughs> Those guys and their humbleness about the... Uh, about the fact that they had the impact that they did. But I'm sure know. that they didn't expect to take have the impact that they had on music here's what we do we turn to the audience and this is where you guys have to come through a little bit so we'll talk about this on a future podcast update or maybe do another episode about it 
If heavy metal never got coined as a term, what do you think it would have ended up being called? Heavy rock, like it was being called before that, or something else? Hard prog. And the way that you find us is by uh, emailing us. You can go to the website. Uh, You can answer. uh, You can actually contact us right through imbalancehistory.com, or you can send us an email at imbalancehistory at gmail.com, or post a comment on this episode on the page on Facebook. So find us on Twitter. You could do that. Marcus and Darkus and Reku Radio. We're easy to find on Twitter. And uh, keep an eye for future updates and things going on. That's kind of where we are on the... Uh, that. Now, it's it's just like the origin of the term itself. We really can't get anywhere because you can't really think of anything immediately that would you know jump to mind to call it instead of heavy metal. That's true. But... For me, Motorhead. But, you know, for everybody, that's different, too. Some people that say is... Sabbath. Yeah, some people say... I mean, if you think about it, the hole in the world of metal without Lemmy is gigantic and oh. monstrous. And if we lose Ozzy and any other members Stop of Sabbath, right now. that will happen. Stop. The hole will get bigger. Okay, we'll cut that out. But <laughs> All righty, we're going to do science real quick. And just so you know, the term heavy metal was first written about in 1817 by German chemist Leopold Gmelin. He divided the elements into three categories, non-metals, light metals, and heavy metals. 1817 used with metals like uranium and, you know, elements like that that are the heavy metals. Wow. Always learning something here on the podcast. (laughs) All right, man. I'm glad we covered that heavy metal area there. The Imbalance History of Rock and Roll is a production of Dark Doc Media. I'm one of your crazy hosts, Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we'll catch you next time here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.